Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. So big thank you to them. On today's show, I'm speaking to Theodora Lang, Head of Data Science and Analytics at Sangoban. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. Before we jump into exactly what you're doing now and, and what Sangoban do, let's go back a little bit. Uh, into kind of education. Um, I think I'm right in saying this. You started a maths degree, right? And then switched to economics. What was the story? I did, I did, yes. So um, if you're wondering what this weird accent is, I am originally Hungarian. So um, I I started school in Hungary. I did a a maths degree and then I quickly moved on to applied economics for, for my undergraduate degree in Hungary. And then uh, from from econ, I mean, I really enjoyed the field. So I got a scholarship and I moved over to the States. So that's the other weird element in in the way that I am speaking. So I went to the States for grad school and and I did economics, more specifically econometrics. So like the applied statistical modeling to econ as uh, as my master's degree. Yeah, so I suppose when you think about it from that point of view yeah lots of statistics looking at the applied side of economics so going into the world of data science isn't really that big of a stretch like there's lots of the same skills not not at all and and to be honest um i think for data science what you really need is sort of like a critical thinking mindset and when you're thinking about mathematics statistics economics to a certain degree or even like physics or you know um, engineering that sort of stuff the one thing and and i think these are the traditional fields that data scientists actually come from yeah. one thing that i think all of these fields have in common is this really structured way of thinking you have a problem and you need to concentrate on that problem and you need to be asking the right set of questions and i think that's what's in in, in common and that's what i have found as well starting in econ and starting in in mathematics really gave me that ability of sort of like asking the right questions yeah no the best way that it was explained to me was someone who did a physics degree but they'd said that a lot of these subjects there is by nature of the subject lots of data available which is true in economics is true in physics it's true in a lot of those fields and you have to make sense of it and then present it to several different audiences if you like which is essentially what a data scientist does and obviously now there is data science courses there's machine learning courses but in the kind of 2010 to 2015 region and obviously before that too yeah that was your way of getting into that kind of or gaining those skills while still having solid stats maths um, problem solving like those are just par for the course right yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, you can think about statistics as the like foundation for for data science. Most of your uh, unsupervised uh, and supervised algorithms are actually coming from that that mathematical background and that statistical background. There's this joke in the econ department that uh, prior to I think what 20, 2010, linear regression was just called linear regression. Nowadays, it's called machine learning. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was one. I remember one of the first events that we ran in Manchester. They actually pulled up loads of like papers from the fifties, and it had loads 
of the current machine learning techniques, they just didn't have the computing power or they didn't have all of the tools necessary, but the kind of core principle of it, yeah, linear regression or something else that already existed. Exactly. And I guess the, the other evolution that we have observed is in the past, some of these techniques were mostly used for research. So there was not an end product that you had to maintain in the end. Yeah. Uh, you had to care about from from design. And that, that's what economics does as well. It uses, I don't know, mathematical and statistical models to sort of like answer social questions or social problems, for example. And yeah. in the end, there is no, uh, there, there, there isn't really a goal of like productionalizing something. And when you're thinking about data science in its applied sense, let's say combined with machine learning engineering, what you're taking is, you, or what you're doing is you take this research problem and then turn it into a production system that actually continuously serves predictions or, or is part of an application, for example, or, or a si- system of applications that yeah. then solve the problem in a continuous manner. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and before we jump into your kind of career background, did you notice any obvious differences between Hungary and the United States when it came to kind of teaching style, learning, um, and did you have a preference? Oh, I, I, I think I did, especially with the maths program. So I think what is really unique about the states and I think most Western universities is the teacher-student relationship is really built around cooperation and collaboration. In the States, students are just hammering the teachers after every class with questions like, oh, prof, why did you say this? Why did you say that? What paper should I read? Does this theory make sense? And question, like the questions that the students are asking are very challenging. And you don't walk into a class thinking that, okay, the professor knows all of the answers and that's the ground truth. Yeah. In Hungary, it is actually quite different. In, in, in Hungary, there is this hierarchical structure between the teacher and the student. And pretty much you walk into class, what you learn is the ground truth. And, and that's slightly different. Now, I do have to say that my econ undergrad program um, and that whole department was founded by a professor who taught at Michigan State. My undergrad program was much closer in economics to the American model than, for example, my maths program. Yeah, okay, I get you. Um, I know it's interesting. It wasn't something we'd spoken loads about on the show, but we had um, a couple of people on recently that had studied in different places. And it's an interesting look into the differences and, and and the pros and cons, I suppose. Yeah, but for, so from an industry point of view, I think I'm right in saying you did like a, an internship in Hungary, right? In, the, in, in a bank, essentially as a data scientist. Exactly. So that was actually during my graduate program in the States. So for the summer semester, we had the option of either taking an advanced forecasting class, which I have taken before, or going into an internship in whatever industry or company that, that, that you could choose. So what I opted for doing is instead of staying in the States for that summer, I went back to Hungary and I applied for this position at a, at a bank, which is actually part, part of the like Deutsche Bank conglomerate. So it, yeah, yeah. It, it's the Hungarian subsidiary, but it, it, it's a massive bank. And, and I was working with, with their lead uh, macro statistician there. 
and pretty much what I had to do in those two and a half months, something like that, um, was to build models around predicting inflation and then really predicting how the components of the GDP, so gross domestic product, um, would move. And that was really the very first experience that I had with like hands-on modeling outside of the school framework, which is, oh, here's this really clean data. It's all provided to you and it's in this really nice structure. Apply this, I don't know, uh, a REMA model to it. And then in the end, you get a number. It was completely different. Yeah, no, I bet. And that's one of the things that when people are looking for data scientists is like, yeah, have you dealt with the ambiguity, the crazy data, the kind of the, all of that before you get to, yeah, okay, you know which statistical technique to apply. Like that's, that's fine, but there's everything else to do. But yeah, I mean, I looked at your LinkedIn and it was like time series analysis, macro modeling, forecasting, all things you would see on a data scientist CV. But for a long time now, banks have just had that built into their kind of credit risk their like loads of different models they, the banks have had for years they just didn't call it data science but yeah that makes sense that that was your kind of first kind of industry experience of it and then after graduation you stayed in the states for a while right so working in a consultancy again looking at pricing models being client facing being technical that must have been quite a baptism of fire working in a client facing role in the states where i mean everyone in the states is just so confident right (laughs) (laughs) and it's not just not just that management consulting is not your traditional nine to five job so it's um, it's a lifestyle let's let's put it this way so i went into this first of all a business analyst position but then I, i i was promoted to be an associate and really that was the first time when these models that we have built, and the application was pricing. To, to be honest, the structure is always the same. The applications can be different. That was the first time when what I have built, personally coded, put together, thought through, etc., actually made a material difference to someone on the other end. Because yeah. up until then, it was very abstract. Like, oh, what, what if I build this and I predict that, I don't know who would survive on the Titanic, right? Um, it doesn't really have a material impact. It, it doesn't have consequences. If yeah. I price something incorrectly and the company implements it and then they lose a bunch of money, that then has material consequences. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And did you enjoy that more or did it just add stress onto like the job? I loved it. I loved it because it gave purpose. Um, yeah. and, and to me, that is probably the most important thing. Does what I am doing matter? And it can be a pricing problem or talking about construction, which is what Sangoba, my current company, is in, in, in terms of industry. Like, yeah. can, we, can we predict, I don't know, equipment failure? Can we predict who's going to churn as a customer? The problems might be different and and across industries there are very very interesting problems to solve and the question is to what purpose are you trying to solve those problems like uh, if i fix the pricing or if i recommend pricing to a to a company is that going to put them in a better position on the market for example or is it is it going to be better pricing for the customers because the prices that we let's say optimize are better for the end user 
because yeah. we price the, the the materials or the products that they care about right. Um, and, and to me, that is important. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And like you said, having that purpose to do it, yeah, I can totally get it from that point of view. Do you think working in a management consultancy and even taking that a step further, working in a management consultancy in the United States, do you think that made you a better data scientist because of being client facing, having the repercussions of working on other people's problems and then having to communicate that internally as well? Yeah, I, I would separate my answer into two. The answer is yes, by the way, um, but, but I would separate my answer into two. The first one is as a data scientist, so, so for example, someone who actively works on data science problems, it mattered and, and, and it made a difference because it gave me the ability to see many different industries, many different companies and many different problems. It widened my portfolio yeah. What mattered the most was because I knew that I wanted to go into leadership and ultimately lead data science teams or ML teams or AI teams or whatever you wanted to call it. That exposure to acting as a translator between something highly technical, so a data science model, for example, or a machine learning model, for, for example, yeah. and the client's ability to consume that information, that translator role was the the key learning for me yeah no i bet and we've we see that all the time so we work with some more traditional consultancies where it is very much they work on large client problems and uh, and they communicate them back and we also work with more kind of embedded technical data consultancies but no matter who it is when we are recruiting for those people the communication element of it is much, much more important than the technical element. They, they can teach or refine a lot of the technical stuff, but if they can't translate, then it becomes very difficult because, yeah, you need to be able to talk to an internal data science team for your client just as well as the financial director or the marketing team. or It doesn't matter, basically. You have to be able to talk to them, right? Absolutely. And you have to be able to understand the problems that they are trying to solve, right? Um, yeah. And with, with Sangoban, we are in a, I think we are in a very fortunate position because our data science team is part of a wider technology team in Sangoban and, and we work under Agile. So if if anyone is familiar with the, the Agile framework, usually what you would have is, for example, a product ownership team or a product owner whose yeah. sole purpose is to identify problems and then design a roadmap for solutions, right? Yeah. So in that context, it's relatively easy for us because the product owner would give us the problem. We work with them to design a solution and decide whether machine learning is an appropriate element of that delivery, for example. But yeah. in any other context, especially if you don't have access to a product ownership team, for example, on a problem, then you absolutely need to have the ability to understand what is it that you're trying to solve. And this always happens on the show where we go off topic really quickly, but does Agile work, in your opinion, on data science problems, or does it work in the wider technology team which data is a part of to identify problems, like you just said? Like, can you apply agile methodology in your data science team? So I would say, and I will be the first to put my hands up to admit that we are not hardcore followers of 
agile framework. Yeah. I don't think anybody is. Anyone that says they are are probably lying. <laughs> I mean, I know I know some companies who do extreme programming, and that is hardcore. But yeah. in, our, in, 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 in our case, what we do is we borrow certain things from Agile, especially from Scrum, because the rest of the delivery teams under our technology team work under Scrum. We had to adopt the way in which we work to, to match their planning or delivery schedule, for example. What that means is that I think we took the best things from Agile and adapted it to our teams. So what do I mean by that? Some of the ceremonies, for example, daily yeah. standards. We try to work our, our um, or we try to plan our work in, in sprints. Are we shipping a product at the end of each sprint? And no, that, that's, that's not really how it works with data science or, or machine learning. But yeah. we are trying to add new features or incremental things at the end of each, let's say, two-week cycle. Um, retrospectives, learning from our mistakes. And we do make a lot of mistakes. So in, in data science and analytics, I think uh, making mistakes is a huge part of the process. The question is, you know, what, what do you learn from that? And really yeah. this access to to a, a, a scrum team, including a product owner, product analyst, um, I don't know, an integration architect, solution architect, etc., who can design the solution so that my team, which is a data science analytics and ML engineering team, every single individual in my team can focus on the stuff that they are supposed to be doing, that they are doing the best, and not wasting time on thinking about, oh, how should this integration look like, for example. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think I'm sure the whole point of Agile was that people should take the parts that make sense for their business because otherwise it's not a very, for lack of a better word, not a very agile solution, is it? If everyone has to do it the same way. Um, and yeah, one of the criticisms I have seen before is data science has been shoehorned into small squads of developers and product owners never working together as data scientists and having two weeks to come up with stuff when by design data science is research-based is a longer cycle um and often you need a bit of time to work out if a model's working for example and two weeks just isn't realistic um so yeah no everything everything you said makes sense and i think people some people listening will breathe a sigh of relief that it isn't just like shoehorned into Spotify software development because they did it 10 years ago. Like it's, it's one of those things. We've mentioned Sangaman a few times. So you now work for them. Um, yeah. I remember when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you said that if you're in France and say you work for Sangoban, it's like telling everyone you work for Google, which I thought was quite cool. But yeah, you joined them as an analytics manager for a couple of years. And over yes. the last couple of years, you've been head of data science and analytics, setting up a center of excellence for, for data science analytics as well. Um, so you'd mentioned already you knew you wanted to get into that leadership role. So is that the reason you first moved? Did the analytics manager job come up and you thought that's a great step or, or how did it come about? Yeah, so it, it was a very interesting move. So Sangaban was actually one of my clients with the consulting firm how, how dare you <laughs> i know it's like the biggest no-no that you can imagine <laughs> but but yeah so sangaban was one of my clients and um and uh, i have to say that the company's values 100 percent aligned with 
my personal values. And that was the biggest reason why I was really interested in working with them. Plus, on top of that, at the time, and I think this is like 2017, 2016 that we are talking about, they did not have any analytical capabilities whatsoever in the UK. Now, when I say that, I mean it to the degree that I think the word analytics wasn't even part of their vocabulary. <laughs> and it, it, it's really funny because if you research Sangoban, by the way, what you will find is that this is the ver- one of the world's top 100 most innovative companies. Like they are literally in the same ballpark or playing field as Google, Alibaba, Amazon in terms of innovation. Yeah. But most of their innovation traditionally came from product innovation new materials, new construction materials, glass, for example, Um, but never data products. And in 2016 and 2017, it it turned out to be a a big area of focus. I mean, it continues to be, if anything, it, it has just grown ever since. But there was this need that they wanted to build out analytical capabilities. So one thing led to another. Um, I, I moved I moved over and I took on this analytics manager role. And it was really funny because I actually sat in finance and I know nothing about finance. I never wanted to do anything with finance other than potentially solve some forecasting problems or I don't know, uh, cash flow optimization problems. Um, But I started out in sitting in finance, reporting to the finance director and being tasked with setting up an analytics function, which we have done, but we only focused on research problems, which meant that you didn't really get a return on your investment. This resource is expensive and it frustrated the business. It frustrated me because we couldn't really create a product at the end. It didn't really serve the purpose that I wanted it to serve. Um, And at the end of 2019, there was a massive restructure where all of the data capabilities within Sangoban were sort of like brought under one center of excellence and integrated into a wider technology slash digital function. And that was the turning point because that's where our team, I think, tripled. Um, It's now a, a, a team of roughly 12 people just in data science and analytics. It's part of a wider data structure where you have a separate data architecture, team data engineering, data governance, master data management, BIMI. So we separate that reporting um, and we have a digital data innovation function as well. And that whole thing is part of a wider technology organization. And that's what made the difference. And it was research-based. Now, what are you now focused on as a data center of excellence? Like, what kind of things can you help Sam and Coban kind of get better at or, or even start doing? Yeah, so Sangoban has three big arms building distribution, manufacturing, and then high performance solutions. So, right now, we are tackling building distribution problems. Um, and I would say that our focus now, whereas in the past it was research, now it's production. Can we create shippable products that actually integrate into other applications using, you know, ML models, for example? For yeah. example. So some of the problems that we are trying to solve are obviously predictive problems, but also optimization questions. 
So how do you optimize your supply chain, for example? What stock should you order when and in what quantities? How do you load up a truck, for example? How do you stack the products on top of each other? Can you put, I don't know, bricks on plasterboard, for example? You shouldn't, by the way. Or can you predict which customers are likely to leave the business? Especially in a context when it's not a subscription-based business. It's a completely different problem. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of really cool things that we can do in, in construction and in building distribution. And you mentioned um, like uh, productive asset maintenance as well. So like seeing what machinery might need fixed when or what machinery might last longer than you initially anticipated. So like saving the business potentially quite a lot of money with so customers don't complain about faults, but also you might get more out of something than you thought you would have. Absolutely. And we are just getting our hands on the manufacturing side of the business because we prioritize building distribution as a sector. Yeah. In manufacturing, if you think about manufacturing 4.0 or industry 4.0, as, as people refer to it, yeah. every single line that produces products and materials is equipped with sensors. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to name the brand, but there's one particular brand in, uh, by the way, it's probably true for all of the brands in, in manufacturing in Sangoban. If you walk into the plant and you talk to the plant manager, they will say that today is Tuesday. So I don't know, uh, Gary over there is working the other end of the line and I know his working style. So I'm going to adjust this little pulley here a, a, a tiny bit because then the mixture that we are going to end up in in the end is going to be better. And the question is, that's a completely manual process of someone just knowing who is working on the day, what day of the week it is, what is the working style of that individual, and then manually just guessing how they, what, what is the composition of the product that they are going to put together. Yeah. And they are surrounded by sensors sensors that produce terabytes of data like every six seconds a recording is made on every portion of that line of you know this is the temperature this is the temperature of the air this is the temperature of the mixture this is how much air is going through it we are recording all of that data but no one is really doing anything with it now some people might see a massive problem there and it is a problem because we are not doing anything with it what I see is a massive opportunity because if you take all of that data and you know you have the processing power whatnot, then that decision that that plant manager makes every single morning to optimize the processing on the line can be automated. And that is what I am re- referring to as either predictive maintenance or anomaly detection or, or whatever you want to call it, where you optimize the processing or the, you know, the, the creation of a product at the end of the line based on sensory data. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And it's one of those things that there'll be so much for you and the team to go at. But it's choosing it's choosing the right things, adding the business value. But again, you will have got a lot of that from your first role in the state. So that's a good place to be. And we've already talked about the fact that you bring together data and analytics as a, a whole working under technology. Do you think that it is working well with the kind of a center of excellence for data science? 
under technology with other data pillars kind of within that does that structure make sense now that you're in it and and does do you think it's a good way of doing things i think for sangoban it works because our goal with sangoban is to fix a couple of big problems a couple of big hitters and the specific nature of the problems that we are trying to solve is it, it, it requires some sort of an application to be shipped in the end. If you go into a different industry, for example, or academia or, you know, a, 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 another company, if the, if the goals are different, for example, you might only require a one-off exercise of someone just looking at something, analyzing it once, giving you recommendations and then you go away take actions on the back of that then you probably don't need this whole setup with a with a massive like technology team around it to enable putting stuff into production yeah um because it's expensive <laughs> it's a huge team it, it is an expensive team so i think it really depends on what the goals are, how mature your problems are, how mature the companies, for example. For a, a small startup who is, I don't know, just trying to figure out, who, who just trying to figure out, I don't know, churn in, in their business, maybe just buy a CRM software that comes integrated with, with these algorithms. You don't necessarily need to have your own in-house capabilities with all the shebang around it. Yeah, I think a lot of people are now learning that after hiring one or two data scientists and realizing that they could pay a consultancy on an ad hoc basis or they could bring in something off the shelf that's maybe not super sophisticated, but does the job. Um, yeah. I think yeah, I think people have probably learned the hard way about jumping on a bandwagon, a bandwagon of data science and then not really utilizing it to its full potential. Another thing I was going to mention, and I actually wasn't going to mention it until I saw one of your colleagues on LinkedIn who talks about MLOps. Um, yeah. It's something I've been talking a lot um, with a few of our customers, a few people that I know in the industry on whether or not it's a trend that doesn't really need to be there and if it should just be built into data science teams or if it's a real big problem where it needs solved. Um, I mean, you've obviously got people focused on MLOps and machine learning engineering, so you can you can see the value of it. What is the approach at Sangoban? Like, how are you trying to mitigate the, the kind of issues that arise around productionization of, of models? Yeah, so um, MLOps and ML engineering, and by, by the way, I don't think that these terms are necessarily interchangeable. Um, yeah. Is a, is a new arm of my team. So it, it only existed for, I think, for the past six to eight months within Sangoban. And there was a clear need for it. And that, that's why we started building out this capability. Because obviously we had this ambition of productionalizing models and productionalizing them the right way. We had access to DevOps teams, we had access to testing teams, integration, etc. Yeah. But the way we define a data scientist's role in my team is very specific to the stats, maths, wizardry, not necessarily the software engineering part. Yeah. So there was a clear gap between the capabilities that we had to tap into in, in the wider delivery teams in, in, in our technology organization versus what we were able to do in the team. So 
the first thing that, that we determined was that we need a role in between who understands enough about machine learning um, and, and software engineering so that they can bring the two sides together. That's yeah. how the ML engineering side of the team was established. And then MLOps is really, once you are thinking about productionalization, I mean, it's DevOps for machine learning systems, right? How do yeah. you ensure that you can continuously integrate, continuously deliver, continuously deploy in a robust, scalable manner? And that yeah. framework is what was missing for us to, to actually deploy products or, or deploy applications uh, or, or models in a way that, that is actually going to be sustainable. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I mean, I had a chat with a client the other day that said they really want to have some sort of MLOps framework purely because they're worried that the people that know how to do it now in the business, quite a lot of it is in their head, quite a lot of it is in their way of working, but nothing's hugely formalized. And if that person leaves or if they have to suddenly scale at a huge kind of pace, they're going to be pretty screwed. So yeah, they, they want, albeit a relatively simple process in place, having those frameworks ready. Um, so no, it's really good that you've had that for six, eight months and noticed the, the, the need for it, really. And, and, and we, we actually switched the way we work um, as well as a consequence of that. So traditionally, the way we would have been thinking about modeling approaches and, and just the methodologies that we would be using is, oh, here's this cool problem. This is the whole array of uh, ML models that I can use to, to solve this problem. Why don't I just release a, I don't know, a neural network or something, something that might be actually very simple. Yeah. Now, when it comes to ML ops and ML engineering, the question you should be asking is that, how are you going to make this robust and how are you going to maintain it and scale it in the end, right? Yeah. So the way we shifted our modeling approach is that the first conversation is now actually with the ML engineers. How should this look like from a design perspective? Do we really need an overly complex algorithm that then we would need to maintain? Or should we just go for something simpler that does the job just as well, but is much easier to maintain? Yeah. It, it, it's a very different way of thinking. It doesn't take away from the creativity. It, during the research or discovery phase, we are still exploring all of the possible things that we could be doing. But when it comes to actually agreeing on a design principle that is now software-led and maintenance-led rather than, oh, this is just so cool to do. That's, that's really good, though, and I'm sure a lot of people listening could, could take something from that. Um we're kind of rapidly running out of time, but let's go on to recruitment. Obviously, given my background, a topic we talk about a lot on the show. Um, you've mentioned already that the team tripled, I think you said. Obviously, you were heavily involved in that. Have you learned anything kind of along the way from your own experience trying to get a job in data and now from your experience as a kind of hiring manager? Is there any tips that you would give people for building kind of high-performing data teams? And I suppose in this crazy job market we're in just now, also retaining people as well. Yeah. Um, building, I would say, have a really clear view on what is it that you're trying to do. 
Yeah. If you just need someone to create dashboards for you because you need better BI or MI capabilities in your business, you don't necessarily need to recruit a data scientist, for example. They are going to be bored and you are not going to get what you want to get out of this whole experience. Yeah. So just knowing what you want, I think, is the first step. And then the second, again, and this is hiring manager to hiring manager. That's the, the first part of the advice. The, the second element would be don't necessarily look for someone who is the most advanced in all of the programming languages and has, I don't know, a million years of experience in solving empirical problems. What you really want is someone with this critical thinking mindset. Everything else can be taught. You can put them on courses. You can you know, teach them yourself. Go for someone who, who actually can think. How would you test that? So like if you were trying to work out if someone had the right kind of mindset, is there a way that that is obvious to you? Or is it just one of these things where you've interviewed so many people, you've worked with so many people, it becomes obvious in how they answer their questions? Uh, I think the best way to do it, and this this is the best way for me to do it, so I, this is a massive caveat. This is what worked for me. It might not work for everyone else, but yeah. give a case study that doesn't have a definitive answer and see how they react. Um, yeah. I think thinking through open-ended questions with, um, I guess, limited amounts of information is probably the best way to see how someone would would solve a complex problem. Incomplete information is your best friend in this case. Yeah, I remember we've got a few clients where, and more on software, but often there's no right answer. And when we tell some of the candidates that, you see the ones that go, oh my goodness, like that's my worst nightmare. Yeah. And then you see the ones that go, all right, cool. So I can put my own spin on this. Like that's, that's quite cool. Um, so you, people, especially in technology, they like when there is an answer. Um, yeah. So yeah, throwing, throwing that out the window would be interesting. Um, okay, no, that's amazing. Uh, and just to lastly touch on, you're also part of the, the women's network at Sangoban. Um, I think we talked about this, that there's not a huge amount of women in technology. There's not a huge <laughs> amount of women in data science there's probably less women in construction than there is in technology or data science and you're managing to tick off all three so that must be uh, it must be interesting (laughs) it is interesting it's also a massive challenge so i have one piece of statistic that i i hope is going to be an eye-opener by by no means do i think that this is representative of like uk construction or uh construction in general but in Sangoban, UK and Ireland, only 18% of our workforce is female. Now, <laughs> when you think about the, uh, the, the representation in the entire population, even after you like adjust for, I don't know, labor force participation, whatnot, it's 46% to, to 50% women. Where are we missing out in, in between? Where are we losing this talent? Because... Um, it's not that women are not out there or they are not interested in technology. My my question is, how do I attract them to a STEM field in an industry that is traditionally very male-dominated and, and male-led? How do yeah. I make some of these problems sound as cool as they are? 
how do I advertise what amazing and, and really exciting problems we have to solve? And how do we make the working conditions more attractive so that women apply, they enjoy what they are doing, and then they stay with us? Yeah, no, and I think having ahead of someone in a decision-making capability, I think always helps attract people because um, they can see, we often say to clients, when you're interviewing people, is there someone like them on the panel? That doesn't necessarily have to mean gender, it helps, but someone with a similar background, someone that went to the same university, someone that has the same career background, whatever, someone like them, um, that would help. And then also lots of our clients now, they'll often come to us and say like, our company is really cool. Like we're solving, we work in this tech for good industry or we work in finance. So we've got lots of money. Like I'll always ask them when we work on data science positions, like, well, but what is the problem? Um, because if the data scientist isn't solving an interesting problem, it doesn't really matter what industry. And, and we often say this to some of our clients that don't work in the like desirable industries. And let's use construction as an example. When people get into the world of data science, they probably don't think I'm going to go work for a construction company. But then when you look at the problems, the volume of data, the potential for analytics, that's actually what more people are interested in. So yeah, like you said, it's how do you, how do you get that across? Um, so yeah, no, it's a really interesting challenge. But it's good that Sangoban have got that in place now where you're part of the Women's Network, you're, you're trying to champion these things. Um, and like you said, they're known for innovation, right? So why not stem that to their hiring as well? Exactly, exactly. And as part of the, the Women's Network, we are putting a lot of emphasis on attraction. Um, how do we get this word out there? How do we showcase these role profiles? We have amazing women engineers, I mean, amazing men, like male engineers as well in, in, in Sangoban, but women doing just absolutely amazing jobs um, yeah. in, in construction or in, in technology as well, as a matter of fact. Um, I am not the only head of like a technical field in, in the technology team, for example, or head of testing, for example, which is again, a very technical uh, role. It yeah. is also a woman. So there are more and more of us uh, trying to get into these industries and really trying to showcase that, hey, not only can we do it, but it's also a really cool place to be. Yeah. I know and it's a hard thing to, uh, I mean, yeah, you're not the only company trying to, to do that, but it makes it easier, like you said, when there's other people in the team and there's a kind of joint effort. So, no, it sounds really good. And hopefully when people listen to this, they will get a good feeling for it as well uh, and they can reach out to you and, uh, and learn more about it. I think that's all we're going to have time for, unfortunately, but thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Um, I've actually got loads more questions, so hopefully we can get you back on and chat about it again. But thank you for the time. No, this, this was awesome. And anyone who's interested, if it's just a chat, just drop me a note on LinkedIn. I am very friendly, I promise. <laughs>